Welcome to our continuing 2020 educational webinar series. I'm Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Melody W. Malik, MSHS, President of Revenue Cycle Coding Strategies, LLC. She is a frequent speaker and author for nationally recognized professional organizations and publications. Melody's areas of expertise include coding and compliance, management engineering, and operations involvement, and she is nationally recognized for her extensive compliance expertise. Melody often speaks at national conferences on many topics, including interventional and diagnostic radiology coding, international audit program development, coding compliance, and other healthcare compliance issues. Recent speaking engagements include the Association of Community Cancer Centers, AHRA, the Association for Imaging Management, Radiology Business Management Association, RBMA, Healthcare Billing Management Association, and the Radiology Society for North America. Melody is the AHRA liaison to the American College of Radiology Economics Commission. Melody is a frequent author for national publications and writes for the bi-monthly coding column for AHRA Radiology Management and the Healthcare Billing Management Association Billing. Her work has also appeared in the RT Image, Imaging Economics, Radiology Today, and Radiology Business Journal. Melody co-authored Revenue Cycle Coding Strategies Coding Guide for Diagnostic Radiology and Interventional Radiology. Prior to her current position, Melody held the position for Vice President of Billing Compliance for the largest national billing company, where she was responsible for the implementation, oversight, and maintenance of the Billing Compliance Program. Melody holds a Master of Science in Health Systems degree and a Bachelor of Industrial Engineering degree, both from Georgia Tech in Atlanta, Georgia. She also holds the Professional Certification of Certified Radiology Administrator, Certified Professional Coder, Certified Professional Coder Hospital, and Radiology Certified Coder. Melody has achieved fellow status with the AHRA it is a recent recipient of the prestigious AHRA Gold Award for her organizational and industry contributions. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions in the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM, and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There is no need to request either one. They'll come automatically. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. A download of the handout is available on the side or the upper panel of your, of your screen. So, Melody, a very warm welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. 
Thanks, Catherine. Thanks for the opportunity. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in today. As today is we're going to talk about compliance and the cost of one and done. And so as we start thinking about what does that mean, how do we balance efficiency with compliance and making sure that we're doing things quickly, but yet in the most compliant way. So the goal of this, as we're looking at it, is you know thinking about when is there enough information to actually release a charge. We're going to talk about what is the role of the physician, the provider, as it relates to documentation and also in the coding process or charge capture process, and what's different. You know, charge capture and coding aren't exactly the same. Talking about how diagnoses um, and diagnosis codes impact quality-based payment models, and and looking at where we are today and where we're going in the future for that. And then also, how do we communicate the necessity of, of getting clinical data to our providers as they generate the medical record information? So we're in a world today of electronic medical records, and sometimes we say that those electronic medical records can be a blessing and a curse. It's great that there's so much information there, uh, but what we also have to be careful of is that our providers don't spend all their time documenting things, losing sight of the patient, but that also the other side of that is that they don't spend the time that's needed documenting to accurately reflect the complexity of taking care of that patient. So living in the world of electronic medical records presents some unique challenges that really didn't exist 20 years ago as time marches on. So again, we want to balance efficiency with compliance as we look at that. So first we're going to talk about defining really what does it mean when we talk about one and done. One and done could have a couple of connotations to that. It could be a really positive thing or it could be perceived as a shortcut. So how do we, find, again, find that balance? Let's talk about a little bit more the role of diagnosis codes. Diagnosis code submission is not just checking a box to make sure that we're getting paid for something. There's a lot of other ways that the diagnosis codes that we submit to our individual payers get used, not only by our insurance payers, but also by other organizations. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. And then talk about, you know, the impact of change as a whole. Again, as we're looking at as we make changes within our systems, as we make changes in our coding processes, how do we work through that in a very collaborative and positive and efficient way with our providers, because the reality is we recognize as we talk about compliance and as we talk about coding, whether it's diagnosis codes or CPT procedure codes, this is not why, how, why our providers went to medical school. They didn't go to medical school to really learn everything around it. They learned a lot of stuff, not taking anything away from that, but, but really they went to school to, to take care of patients. And so we have this whole somewhat complicated and sometimes cumbersome process that goes around that that can create a lot of frustration. So we want to try to make sure that we're protecting our providers, that we're giving them the support that we need, and that we can make things as compliant as possible, again, and doing it in a way that's very collaborative with our providers for that. So when we talk about, you know, how will we define one and done? What does it mean to say, well, we just want to do one and done? Well, we could look at a shortened definition to say that that's really the process of assigning a diagnosis code um, to, that really gets the, gets the, the uh, claim paid. And, and that's, that's positive and negative, right? I, you always want to be careful when somebody says, just tell me what to say or which diagnosis code works best. Um, when we look at that, what we want to do is make sure that, you know, we, we're assigning the codes that are accurately reflected in the documentation. And sometimes it really may only be one diagnosis code, but a lot of times there could be more. So how do we balance between 
what's the right amount to communicate to the payer to show how sick the patient is or exactly what's wrong with them, but not spend so much time that it becomes an incredibly inefficient process with it. So again, finding that balance is really, really important for that. Because when we're looking at productivity, you know, the number of clicks, as we say, for the provider matters. I mean, that's, that's kind of the downside sometimes of the electronic medical record is that there's so many times our providers are having to click through different screens. We look at the number of keystrokes. We look at, you know, how many time, how much additional time has it added to a patient visit because they have to do all this documentation related to it. So again, we want to make sure our providers understand when we're giving them feedback about documentation or things as it relates to coding, that we are taking this into account, that we're building processes as efficiently as possible. One of the things that you have to think about as you look at this within your own organization is what is everybody's role? What is the role of the provider in terms not only of documentation, but, but also in the, in the coding and charge capture process versus what is the role of supporting staff? And this becomes important because if you're in a situation where your providers are actually selecting diagnosis codes within your system, how you're going to approach it may be a little different than if you have support staff or coders that are actually looking at the provider's medical record documentation and assigning a diagnosis code. I think when we have our providers assigning diagnosis codes, that's when we tend to get into a situation where they're going to pick more of the one and done versus getting into more of the details. You know, it is a balancing act. I'm not going to tell you that there's one right way to do it, but I do always pose the question of do we really want to use our highest paid resource or our highest educated resource to be doing some of these particular tasks? So again, how do we find that particular balance um, related to diagnosis codes. The other thing with diagnosis codes is our providers aren't always trained to understand all the guidelines associated with it. So we want to be careful that it's not, let's just pick a diagnosis code when we might not be following coding guidelines. Well, if we take, kind of take a step back, and depending on how long you've been in the industry, this may or may not be a picture that makes sense to you. If you're on the younger side, this probably doesn't make sense at all because you're used to being in a electronic world where everything is done automatically. But for those of us that have been around a little while, in, in the old days, it wasn't uncommon to, you know, walk by somebody's desk and see a whole bunch of sticky notes on a computer that were kind of job aids or cheat sheets, as people used to call them, with that. And that would give them information about how to handle a particular payer or how to have certain diagnosis codes on there. Well, obviously, we don't want to get into having these, these cheat sheet pieces of it. This is an actual real picture of a job aid. And it's obviously ICD-9 codes. Uh, for those of you around from ICD-9, these are ICD-9 codes. This particular one um, dealt with a radiology practice. But this was actually a job aid that we found um, with a particular organization that they had used. And this is how the coder was actually signing the codes. Um, you know, is that the best ideal? No, for a lot of different reasons. Were the codes themselves necessarily wrong? No, but again, if we're not really looking at the whole process, we could inadvertently just be selecting one code that we knew kind of click, check the box and fit the bill, but didn't tell us anything else. So we've got to get away from just having these, these quick job aids that just give us one answer. The other thing, though, that we do, again, we're back to balancing here, is we do want to make sure, though, as we're assigning diagnosis codes and as we are being as robust as possible, that we are selecting diagnosis codes that are relevant 
to that patient's condition relevant to the procedures being performed or exams being performed and in line with the payer guidelines. Uh, because sometimes we have situations where a patient may have a couple of different conditions, but from the payer's standpoint, there's only one that they consider payable. As long as that's documented in the patient's record, that would be the appropriate diagnosis to submit as our primary diagnosis for that. So we do have to understand payer guidelines in addition to coding guidelines uh, related to that. So again, we think about efficiency and we look at our process. How can we help our providers be as efficient as possible but yet accurate as possible. So again, efficiency has its role, but it can't be the primary driver in everything that we're doing. I think this is a good picture because, you know, we can be in such a hurry for things that we don't always look at the end result um, related to that. So why do we need more detail? Again, what's wrong with one and done? Why can't we just pick something that we know is paid and we could say it's hypertension or we could say it's you know, diabetes, or we could do something else. Well, because we want to make sure that whatever we're assigning is accurate. And there's a lot more complexity now. As we're in ICD-10 and we're looking at getting all the way up to those eight digits, there's a lot of detail for that. This information gets used in a lot of different ways, not only to tell the story of that patient to the insurance provider to provide coverage for them. It also goes to the National Institute of Health. It also goes for research, there's a lot of different reasons that this information is getting used. And the other thing is we don't want to shortchange the, the quality of the care that we're providing to our patients. If everybody seems to just have a single condition or without complications or more additional details, they're going to look at that um, morbidity or, or mortality information related to that and, and think that your patients are not that sick. And then so as we move into more of a, a different type of, of payment methodology related to the complexity of care, you're shortchanging yourself as providers or in individuals working at providers in terms of, of letting to know what the uh, complexity is. So when we look at kind of the demographics for things um, and we look at, you know, what, what is it that a provider describes versus what ICD-10 describes, you know, related to that, we want to describe that patient care, um, but we want to describe it again in a level of detail that makes it really crystal clear what specifically we're doing for the patient. We want to show medical necessity. Medical necessity is the two primary words that drive everything that we do. That's how payers define things. When we're getting things approved in advance, it's about medical necessity. When they're looking to pay for services in the back end, it's about medical necessity. So we want to show everything that was done met but did not exceed the patient's clinical need. And obviously there's judgment calls that are associated with this, but we want to make sure there's appropriate documentation. What the payers are looking for is that the patient receive the right treatment in the right place at the right time. And the medical record documentation should reflect that and should share that um, as it relates to medical necessity is key. That's a key component of our E&M visits, our evaluation and management visits. It's going to become even more so in 2021 as really the sole driving factor as we look at our E&M at levels and things like that. But again, right treatment, right place at the right time becomes really important for that. So here's a picture for you. For many of you, you think back to your younger days when you used to enjoy watching The Wizard of Oz. Um, and we look at the yellow brick road and you think about, you know, having the, the voices in your head of them singing, the lollipop kids singing, because, 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 that fits with medical necessity. So if, if there's something I can leave you with of when we look at documentation about medical necessity in a medical record, 
why did we do something? There should always be because. You know, why was a lab ordered? It should be clear in the documentation. Because of this, the lab was ordered. Um, same thing with imaging studies. So anything that's done, that medical record should always answer the question, why was this study done? Why was this ordered? Why was this treatment selected? Why was this level of visit filled? Because the answer should always be in that electronic record. Um, with that, you know, no matter what the situation is, it's not something we should have to go explain later. And we can't say, well, anybody looking at that would know. They're really looking for that documentation in the medical record because, so again, we've got questions. We want to make sure the medical record is really crystal clear on what our answers are. The other piece we have to think about, again, it's not just us looking at that medical record or even the individual payers looking at it. We do have to take into account that there's going to be audits that are going to happen. Everybody gets audited at some point. It may be one or two patient encounters. It may be something bigger, um, but but every organization um, gets audited at some point. Again, it's, it's what kind of documentation do you have to defend it? When external auditors come in, they look at a lot of times, take the ZPIX, for example. ZPIX is a little different than, say, regular Medicare or some of the other auditors. ZPIX auditors are actually looking for fraud. Um, no bones about it. When they come in to do an audit, they believe there's fraud there and they're looking for it. So the, how do they determine it? Somebody may refer something to them, meaning from another agency, but they do a lot of data analysis. They actually look at all the information that gets submitted, all the CPT codes, all the ICD-10 codes for that, and they look for patterns. They look for things that don't seem quite right. It could be certain diagnosis codes with certain procedure codes. It could be that they see a provider that only builds a particular diagnosis code for all their patients um, with things. There's a lot of different scenarios that may come up that would surprise you um, with it. But again, all that data is going to data warehouses and they're looking at it. So think about how your data looks when it's going in and, and are there patterns there that somebody might pull out that would make you the potential target of an audit for that? I mean, even when we look at our bell curve for, you know, we kind of call it the curse of the bell curve because it doesn't always work this way. Depends on the specialty um, and things like that. But looking at the fact that, you know, they generally are going to expect to see a lot of level threes and a lot of level fours um, from a bell curve standpoint. What is your curve look like? Again, if you're a specialist, it could be that you lean more fours and fives, but everything can't automatically be at that level just because you're a specialist with that. And we want to make sure that whatever levels we're billing for new patient visits, established patient visits, maybe even our inpatient visits. I mean, if every single inpatient encounter, no matter what, is, is a level three, that could be questioned because there are some times where it is only going to be a level one or a level two, depending on the patient's acuity, depending on how soon it is they're getting, you know, being discharged, all those types of things come into play. So you do want to look at that. The other thing about medical necessity that I mentioned, medical decision making is really based on medical decision, it's based on medical necessity primarily. There are things in the current model around, you know, how many different diagnoses there are and, and what was the treatment options and things like that, but medical necessity is really at the heart of that. And again, it has its role today, but as we move into 2021 and the new ENM guidelines, it's gonna have an even bigger role with that. That's gonna be the primary factor that drives, not, not exam, 
not history, uh, you know, all that. It's going to be all about medical decision making. Where now it's one of the, the two components, uh, the two out of three components as it relates to selecting our E&M visits. So, again, medical necessity is really, really huge um, is like with that. So just when we think about it today, if you've got this really comprehensive history documented, a comprehensive exam, but yet low-level uh, medical decision-making, you can't just look at that and say, well, I have two out of three components. This is an established level five. Because, again, what's your diagnosis code going to say and how is that going to match uh, related to that? So, again, you know, Medicare has already said they consider medical necessity or medical decision-making to be one of the key components, even on established patients. So again, it really does all come back to that. And we want to make sure that the way that our medical records are set up is that it's clear that we are documenting medical decision-making sufficiently for that and not just relying upon an extensive history and an extensive exam as part of that process. So, you know, again, when we look at it today in 2020, um, you know, there's type of problem comes into play. There's a whole point system for it. We look at the type of data that is evaluated by the providers, whether it's labs or imaging, um, you know, all sorts of different things come into play. And all this adds up ultimately to how Medicare looks at and determines uh, medical necessity. I should say really supports medical necessity related to it. So we have a pretty complex system um, from that process. You know, and again, when we look at what drives it, um, and we look at the number of diagnoses or management options, how much data they're reviewing and what our risk is, you know, high complexity to get to that high level, that all has to be on there. Moderate starts going down from there. But again, when we look at table of risk, we look at the amount of data that's being reviewed, so much service is supported by what's showing medical necessity, not only for that E&M, it's about that diagnosis code. If we've got all of this, but yet our diagnosis code just uh, our, our diagnosis just has something very simple um, and doesn't have more information related to that, that could send the wrong message. It, it, it's not, again, it's not ba balancing act. Sometimes we focus so much on the CPT code because it's easy to equate that to dollar amounts. If I bill this level, I get this amount of money. But equally, you need to look at, well, what are the diagnosis codes going along with that and does it support it? Some specialties are actually seeing audits by payers that are focused just on the diagnosis codes. For example, for emergency medicine services, there's some payers that are auditing level fours and level fives for certain diagnosis codes because they don't believe those diagnosis codes support um, billing those high of level with it. They want to see more information. They don't want to just see cough, for example. They want to know, you know, was more information. Was there shortness of breath? Was there actually the patient have asthma? There's you know, all sorts of other things that, that could potentially be um, an issue related to that. But again, you'll see more of these audits based on medical necessity as part of being that key component. You know, when we think about medical necessity and we look at what CMS talks about it, CMS being Medicare, talks, says the assessment and plan has to clearly define all the diagnosis that they're looking at during the visit. And if they've got an established diagnosis, What's going on with it? I mean, the patient may have asthma, but is, it, is the asthma stable? Is it improved? Is it worsening? Do they have diabetes? There, there's all, you know, hypertension. There's a whole lot of things that can go into it, but they want to know not just that they have it, but exactly what is the patient's condition related to that. And, and some of those do have diagnosis codes that respond to them or correspond to them. Other ones do not. Uh, but again, we want to very, they want to very clearly see how are you managing the care of that patient as it relates to those conditions. 
You know, other thing is, you know, we want to make sure that we're really careful in how we set up our electronic medical record so that we don't link codes to internal descriptions that aren't accurately reflected the same with ICD-10 um, for that. So it's really important, again, that if we're coding something in particular, that we're not, you know, again, that we're not automatically assigning a code specifically for that. So this is an example, and, and these are ICD-10, ICD-9 codes, but we don't want a situation where it automatically we're ruling out type 2 diabetes and it's assigning a type 2 diabetes code um, related to that. Again, possible migraine headache, but yet it's assigning a migraine headache. We, we want to be really careful with how our systems get set up that we don't inadvertently get diagnosis codes assigned to conditions that the patient really doesn't have um, for that. The other thing is when we think about where this diagnosis code and where this information has come from, and this is back from a coding clinic in 2012, and you'll say, well, this is, you know, a few years ago, does it matter? The answer is yes. And even though the original question was posed around ICD-9, it was reinforced since ICD-10 has come along as well, and the guidelines still apply. And so since our facility has converted to an electronic health record, providers have the capability to list the ICD-9 diagnosis code instead of a descriptive diagnostic statement. Is there an official policy or guideline requiring providers to record a written diagnosis in lieu of an ICD-9 code number? And the answer is yes. There are regulatory and accreditation directives that require providers to supply documentation in order to support code assignment. Providers need to have the ability to specifically document the patient's diagnosis, condition, and or problem. Therefore, it is not appropriate for providers to list a code number or select a code number from a list of codes in place of a written diagnostic statement. Again, this still applies. This is important. When a lot of people set their systems up, even when they converted to I-10, it would be where they would select a code and then that would populate information. The code itself is not does not replace diagnostic information. Diagnostic information can generate a code. We shouldn't have it be the other way around. So we really must document diagnostic information and use that information when you're ordering studies for patients. That information needs to be included on there as well. Other things around there, it talks about, you know, as a Q&A, is there a guide or rule that indicates you should only use the medical record documentation for that specific visit for coding purposes? You know, does each visitor admission stand alone? And could the coder go back to previous encounters to assist um, in getting information or coding of the current visit or admission with that? And it basically says documentation for the current encounter should reflect those diagnoses for that current and relevant encounter for that. It's not appropriate to go back and find stuff without physician confirmation. So it, this is one of those broad questions we get a lot of time. Can you go back and look for information? Yeah, it's one of those yes, but. Yes, you could, but the physician has to confirm it. We're really not going to pull them back in to confirm it. It really should be documented for that encounter. We just need to really be careful and make it clear where information is coming from. We can't just say, let's go look for information that's going to justify this particular encounter or justify this particular study. It really needs to be documented. We have the ability to pull information forward to a current encounter. That's why a physician confirms that and validates that. Um, so there's the ability to, to pull that in. But what we don't want to do, again, going back from a coding standpoint, is going back and trying to find something to justify that patient's condition. We need good documentation today for the encounter that occurred today so that we can ensure that we've got appropriate documentation for that. And one other one when we talk about, you know, as we look at assigning 
um, different things related to ICD-10, for example, with injuries and determining that seventh character that talks about whether it's initial or subsequent and those kind of things. It's another example where in the AHA coding clinic, and as a reminder, American Hospital Association coding clinic does give us authoritative guidance on how to assign ICD-10 codes, whether we're physician side or facility side with it. And they reinforce you should not go, you should only use documentation in the current encounter. You don't go back to previous encounters to determine how to pick that seventh digit code. So it's just another example of where there's a reminder is there to make sure that we're providing information from the current encounter as we're signing those, diagno those diagnosis codes. So when we look at diagnosis codes, that, that's whether or not we're going to get paid. CPT says how much you're going to get paid. Diagnosis codes saying if you get paid. And, you know, many times physicians will sometimes ask, well, you know, how much does, if, if the patient has this condition versus that condition, what's the difference in payment? Remember with diagnosis codes, it's all or nothing. CPT determines how much you get paid. It's diagnosis that determines if you get paid. So did you meet medical necessity or did you not? And the answer is yes or no. It, it really is that much of a lever to say whether or not we're going to get paid or we're not going to get paid uh, based on that particular uh, condition for that. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. Well, we still are in what's called the fee-for-service model. Now, we'll talk, you know, there are some alternative payment models that are continuing to emerge, and we're going to continue to see a focus on those alternative payment models in the future. But the model we have right now on the provider side is that most, not all, but most providers tend to get some form of their reimbursement based on the amount of RVUs that they bill. Um, they may have a base salary. They may get bonus. Based on RVUs, they may be required to bill a certain number of RVUs. Some people truly get reimbursed completely based on RVUs. Some do it based on bills. Some do it based on actual. There's all sorts of different answers to that. But the, the way the system is set up, there's definitely financial motivation for providers to bill more because that's what's going to increase the reimbursement to them individually or to the practice or those types of things. And so, again, the more they do, the more they can get paid for. But keep in mind, medical necessity is ultimately going to drive that. Uh, that's why that whole issue is that bill charges versus pay charges, because we see a pretty big gap sometimes between the bill charges and the pay charges. So we look at fee, fee for service, you know, it, it is, do I think fee for service will ultimately go away? I do. It's just going to be a while. And is it going to happen for all specialties? Certain specialties are, are probably going to be going to have fee for service a lot longer than other specialties just because they may not necessarily have the relationships with patients and some of those kind of things. So if they're just actually, you know, I mean, when you think about, you know, a pathologist or something like that where they're just interpreting exams, it's hard to imagine them being away from fee-for-service because they really don't have a lot of control um, and those things coming into play. But again, fee-for-service is something that's going to continue to be evaluated with it. So part of our challenge is looking at quality versus quantity. You can have both. Clearly, we can have fee-for-service where our providers are seeing a certain number of patients, a high-volume number of patients with that, and also having quality. But one of the things that we're seeing from CMS is they want to continue to look at these models that, that don't reward on, on quantity, but rather reward on quality and, and want to make sure that, pay, that physicians are making appropriate choices. We think about, you know, a total knee
they give us a flat rate amount of money to take care of the patient and we've got a flat rate of money, it's going to be based on the complexity of the patient's care, like we are to diagnosis codes and why it's so important related to that. So we start looking at how did we make this this evolution towards more and more quality. Well, this even goes back to MACRA, the Medicare Access and Ship Reauthorization Act of 2015. This is where we moved from, remember it was PQRS, then it became MIPS. Now we're in MACRA, where we've got this continual move towards quality, linking physician payments to those quality programs. And while there's been a lot of changes through the last few years, they continue to make refinements for these programs and they're not going away anytime soon. So again, where did they get the information? So if I look at the current program um, related to our MIPS and MACRA, so right now, quality is 45% of the total score. We're in year four. I'm so sorry. Uh, Hold on. I think starting at the two, hold on, starting two slides previously, yeah, right there. There, your sound dropped out for a second. Okay, I can so start back I think, over there. Can you start? Yeah, can you start at the beginning of this slide right here? Future models. Sure. Okay, so cool. we'll say, yeah, starting right there. So we'll say, okay, starting at the beginning of the slide, you were doing it was doing really fine, and then all of a sudden it just dropped out. I don't know why. So. No, I don't know either. Is it back now? Is it okay? Yep, you're totally fine. Okay, okay. I'm gonna stop. Okay. Go ahead. So as we look going into the future, you know, and the balancing of it now is it's really about how balance quality and quantity. And, and yes, you can definitely do both in the process with it. It's not to say that if a lot of patients are being seen that there's not quality, but, but it is that balancing act with it. And with the fee-for-service, again, that focuses on the quantity, but now we're going to shift to quality. Um, related to that. So and what's going to define a lot of it? Again, we're going to go back to diagnosis codes and the information in there to show not only quality, but also um, medical necessity with it. And I know that's a theme and you say, well, how does this all fit in there? I mean, we're talking about how do we bill as much as possible and see the most amount of patients with it? Again, that, that's why this is such a balance as we look at both of those. So as we look at things started to shift. So we started with PQRS, then we had MIPS, and then macro and, and MIPS and macro, we can we can sometimes use that interchangeably with it. A lot of people do, but that continued our path going towards where we're focused on linking physician payments to quality and value measurement. And there's been a lot of changes that have happened over the last few years as we've gone down this pathway um, with it. But it's not going to go away. It's not something that CMS or you know, even because this this exactly was a law, so it's not just CMS that comes up with it. It's something sometimes Congress passes for that. I mean, again, they're going to make revisions, but it's not going to go away. So here we are in year four with it, and we look at every year they tend to tweak the percentages a little bit. So quality is 45% of the total score. It's a pretty good percentage when you think about that there's four main measures, and one of those by itself equals 45% of the total score. This was the measurements that replaced PQRS and what was called a quality component of the value-based model with it. Um, this requires 70% sample of Medicare Part B patients for that particular performance period for that. Next one's cost. Cost represents 15% of the total score. So you can see quality is a big percentage, 45%, 
But cost comes into play as well. They want to balance the amount of money being spent. This is what replaced what they call the value-based model with it. It's based on claims data. You don't report anything. So again, they're taking the data of what procedures that you build, what you charge for those, the diagnosis codes, all that information goes into play to look at the cost component. Then we have our, our what they call continuous um, improvement activities, continuous process improvement activities. This is also 15%. This is based on coordination of care, patient safety, beneficiary engagement, different components that come into there. There's a list of things you can do. For example, an ordering provider consulting appropriate use criteria falls into this particular category for the ordering provider side. There's a whole list of things that you can look at based on your specialty and area that you would see what would make sense to do um, in that particular scenario. And then the last one is promoting interoperability. And this one's 25% of the score, which is a pretty good size. So we saw a 45%, a couple of 15%, and then a 25% um, related to that. And so again, there's there's some people, some some specialties that this makes sense related to it. Some of the other ones, if they're excluded, it doesn't apply for a particular specialty, then they would reallocate the points from the other measures as well. So this is based at the individual measure level. And some, it's, some particular specialties it's more applicable to than other specialties for it. Um, the other thing that came into play um, as we look at diagnosis codes and the information um, for it, and again, you know, some of these you can look back and say, well, gee, we're, why are we talking about something from a few years back? Because that's what's driving where the reality of where we are now. Because most times when law gets passed or something gets implemented by CMS, it takes years for things to get put into place. So take appropriate use criteria, for example. That was passed into law in 2014. It was originally supposed to be implemented in 2017, and now we're actually looking at it going into place in 2020 slash 2021. It takes time for these things. But when you look at things called like the accountable health communities model, where they wanted to look at information to see how do we identify patients that based on their social needs or a certain socioeconomic situation that we can identify that there's a gap in care for them. So again, how would we communicate that we have patients that are falling into needing, um, you know, certain, that they're falling into that gap, that they have certain health-related social needs with that? Well, again, back to the beauty of diagnosis codes, there's a lot of information that we can communicate. So it would be a benefit to the patient to not only tell CMS that you know this patient has asthma and diabetes, but telling them additional information may help them qualify for certain things or be identified as a population that needs certain services in that particular area. So we can tell them the patient's complication. We can tell them other risk factors uh, for that or any comorbidities that are impacting their care or even their social history. So a lot of times people are uncomfortable or don't wanna take the time to tell that social history, but honestly, again, Having that data does help to figure out how to allocate resources within a community. So it could be a straightforward a social history thing, such as smoking, alcohol, socioeconomic situations, or it could get into a lot more detail. For example, you have a patient who's non-compliant with their medication, but maybe they're not trying to be difficult. They're non-compliant because they have financial limitations. We may have somebody that um, and has extreme, proper, extreme poverty or they're homeless and we want to communicate that information or maybe they're a spouse that they've had a family member that's gone due to military deployment. Again, all of those things can contribute because 
when you think about even how insurance companies sometimes process information, knowing that someone has a, a military, you know, person that's gone related to that may be relevant in terms of how they're taken care of uh, for that. So again, diagnosis codes are what tell the story. Why is the patient here? Why are we taking care of them today in the ED, in our office, you know, all those types of things. The patient's here because. why? And why is that riskier? I mean, a lot of times I'll hear um, people, either providers or people that work for providers, saying, well, my physicians always see the sickest patients. But yet, when I look at the diagnosis codes, it doesn't tell that story. So we want to tell that story. Why, why might this particular situation impact healing and recovery um, for that? So it'll be something that's very, um, you know, again, you want to tell that particular story with it. The other thing is when we think about uh, the amount of, of not only revenue, and I mentioned kind of the alternative payment models with things, when you look at taking care of cancer, and that's one of those things that we're going to see actually um, more alternative payment models for. There's one right now under discussion for radiation or certain types of cancers where it'll be a flat rate amount of payment, but telling the story of a patient that has breast cancer versus I have a patient that has upper outer quadrant right female breast cancer, they are ER positive, they've got a family history of breast cancer, they're BRCA positive, and they smoke and have neoplasm-related fatigue. How I take care of the patient that has those four additional things listed versus just saying this patient has breast cancer gives a lot more information about how to take care of that patient and why there's a level of complexity and in terms of what kind of treatment they're going to need and what they're going to need ongoing that isn't told when I just say that that patient has breast cancer. So again, I want to tell the whole story information as things continue to grow up and, and give us a lot more with it. So as we look at, you know, how do we ensure documentation, not only within our own practices, but also even for hospitals, and depending on your specialty, many of you have probably heard about what's called CDI, or Clinical Documentation Improvement, and that's really, really important, especially on the facility side, because you can look here in this example with DRGs, so those are our flat rate payments that we get for Medicare patients on the hospital side. Medicare pays a flat rate amount of money, depending on what's wrong specifically with the patient, regardless of what's done for them. So they have three categories. They have without complications, they have with complications, or with major complications. And you can see even with the reimbursement amount, it varies significantly between a without complications versus major complications, which is why facilities are very motivated to make sure that it's really clear what's going on with the patient because they don't want to forfeit appropriate reimbursement. The flip side of that for compliance is we've also we've seen situations where people have, have documented or over-documented or overbilled and said that everything was a major complication when it wasn't. So hospitals always have to make sure that they have appropriate reimbursement. It's the same concept even within your own practice as a physician practice with that for those of you coming from that perspective, because you want to practice your own clinical documentation improvement. You do want to make sure that you're appropriately documenting everything wrong with the patient. So again, that you're getting credit in essence for not only um, you know procedures, but also showing that medical necessity, showing truly the complexity of the patient that you're taking care of so that you're getting that quality score. You're showing the value of what you're doing. It's not just every single patient has this one condition and that they're really easy and straightforward with it. Remember, what we do today, we get paid for in adjustments a couple of years from now. So what we're doing in 2020 is actually going to have an impact in 2022 for that. So remember, there's a two-year lag. 
So when we look at their bonuses that are out there, but there's also the takeaway because it's a budget neutral program. So you can't just think about how do I get through today? How do I make sure that I get this bill out the door? But how do I make sure that when, when they're looking back at my data um, to really say the complexity of the patients I took care of and all the things that I did from a quality standpoint, that I'm going to get credit for that and I'm going to get bonus for that in 2022. So it's not just about today. It's also about the future and how we're going to get appropriately incentivized going into that time period. So things to think about um, when we look at the impact of documentation, it's again, it's not just about that particular encounter uh, for that patient and, and that particular insurance company uh, for it. If you think about the quality measures that are being used, even in hospitals uh, for it, you think about they look at readmission rates. Um, why did this patient get readmitted? I mean, that's that's data that gets tracked about hospitals now. You can look that up. There's a lot of different things that come into play. They look at complications, um, the hospital-acquired conditions, a lot of different, There's again, there's a lot of information, and that all comes from documentation. So again, that quality data that gets documented for that patient becomes really, really important in the process. So how do we capture all the details? So we've talked about history, we've talked about exam, we've talked about medical decision-making, but as we continue to drill that down a little bit more, we wanna talk about in more detail, location, severity, context, and story. So any condition that we're talking about or any particular injury, where exactly is the problem? I mean, some things are systemic problems, but for things that truly do have location, if we're talking about, you know, cancer, where exactly is it? That becomes important. You know, what's the severity of something? Is it acute? Is it chronic? What's the context of it? And what's the story? All of these fit together really nicely. So when we talk about location, um, you know, and it seems like this would be pretty straightforward, but when you look at documentation, we find a lot of this is missing. Um, you know, what's, which side is it on? What's laterality? Is it bilateral? Is it unilateral? Is so what side? What quadrant of an organ is it? Uh, where on the bone? Which particular vessel? Is it as graft versus native vessel? All of that defines ICD-10 coding and gives us greater specificity to tell the story of that patient. Acute versus chronic is always a challenging one. Um, with it, because you've got acute versus chronic, you've got acute on chronic, um, you could have an acute exacerbation of something. So additional details become really important. And this isn't, again, this isn't just about getting the right diagnosis code, which is important, but again, it's talking about severity. So obviously, if something has a hemorrhage, that's going to be a different severity level than something without. Same thing if something has a perforation, that's going to be a much bigger issue than something that, that doesn't have a perforation related to that. So again, all of this is telling that story that shows how you're taking care of that patient. And even the context of things, is it a primary versus secondary? Think about that with malignancy. That's very important um, with that. But that could apply to other things as well. Is it status post the procedure? So is this a complication versus just a condition? You know, what, what's this patient's history? What other conditions did they have? Um, if we're doing something preoperatively, for what condition? Uh, specifically, are we doing that? So there's a lot of different reasons for it. And then, again, what's that patient's story um, with it? Is this, you know, is this an initial injury, a subsequent injury? Is it a late effect of something? Is, you know, what was the patient doing when it happened? Where were they? There's a whole lot of things that come into play because, again, we're talking about severity uh, for those kind of things. So an event itself doesn't replace a clinical statement. The fact that a patient had a motor vehicle accident 
that's relevant, but that does not describe injuries. Um, so we've got to know that's more of a, of a story of how they got the injury, but we can't have that be the place of it. Same thing with a fall. A fall is, is not an injury. That tells how they got injured, but we need more data. So again, everything that we can do related to that patient's story becomes really, really important. So when we think about balancing accuracy with productivity, we have to think about how do we do that? And that's a very, you know, customized solution because there's not one answer fits all. You have to look at how your electronic medical record is set up, what role the providers play with that, and think about that process. So when we think about as our productivity and what's realistic in terms of the number of, of patients a physician can see in a particular day, some of that's going to be specialty driven as well. How much do you really expect the providers to learn code sets? And again, I'm, I'm not I'm not a big advocate in having our providers code. Yes, there's prompts and things we can do in the electronic medical record. You may have them selecting certain things, but then having somebody validate them, validating them. Um, you know, you got to make sure we're looking at coverage guidelines. We've got to look at a lot of different things um, with it. But but how do we find that balance of productivity? And if we find that we've got a big shift in productivity, you know, why is that happening um, for that? Think about what are the things that just require ramp up. If we make an adjustment in the electronic medical record to make it easier for our provider, um, what's going to be the short-term impact and what's the long-term impact for that? And you know, and there's and there's certain things that come along. I'll, you know, I'll even add, as you think about the implementation of appropriate use criteria for ordering providers, that's going to be an additional step that they have to go through in the ordering process. So what does that do to their new normal for that? How much additional time does that take? How does that impact their productivity um, as we relate to those? There's a lot of different things come into play. So when you think about this role of, of our providers and their role in diagnosis code data capture or their role in clinical documentation, with it, think about with your electronic medical record, you know, what is it the electronic medical record can do for you versus what are the things that, you, you know, you've got your EMR in place, you can't change it, what is it that you have to work around with that? So you want to make this as smooth as possible for your providers as much as possible and have every support system in place that you can. So walk that balancing act with that. And again, we want to make sure that we've built prompts and things in place for our providers that they give us that information that we need, that location, severity, context, and story for every encounter related to that, but again, as easy as possible. We don't want to ask our providers to have to free text a lot of information. There's a place for that, but as efficiently as we can make it for them, the more easier it's going to be for them to give us the information that we need to get that lot of data with it. So we also want to move beyond matching words to codes. You know, again, we talked about those job aids at the beginning, and we looked at those, and we've gotten to where, you know, people memorized a lot of them. We don't memorize them as much anymore, but you still have some of that in there. It's not just, if I say this word, I get this code, because there's guidelines with it. We do want to learn, for any particular practice, what are the most common conditions that we see for your specialty? Um, with that, and there are definitely some things that we can train. You don't have to learn the whole ICD-10 book. We want to make sure that we're identifying with that, and we want to make sure we understand the coding guidelines associated with our practice. So, for example, if you're an endocrinology uh, practice, you're, you know, you're going to see a lot of diabetes. You want to understand when should the diabetic code come first versus any manifestation second, versus when does the patient find your symptoms go first and diabetes go second. 
Same thing if you're in orthopedics, there's certain guidelines around fracture care and how do you make sure you're picking the right code for it. You want to make sure you understand all that versus just what's the code for diabetes or what's the code for tibial fracture. That's not going to tell the whole story and it's not going to make sure that we assign the correct ICD-10 codes for that. So, you know, really what you want to look at is, is ensuring that we have the right amount, right? It's that balancing act. We want to have we always want to have detailed clinical information and that we have the right amount of diagnosis codes to balance against that. And we want to do it now. It's not something in the future. We, yes, our payment impact is two years from now, but that's why we have to do it now because what we do today impacts our finances in the future. So a lot of things wrapped up in there and, and hopefully some tidbits that you've gotten from it that you can apply regardless of your place of service or regardless of your specialty because there is no one size fits all solution. Uh, for that, what uh, this information and how you apply it within your organization is going to be varied based on your electronic medical record, based on your provider's role in the, the coding assignment process, what type of support staff they, that you have with it, and again, what, how your individual specialty impacts things. So it's an ongoing challenge. It's not something we do once and we're done with it. It should be a continuous quality improvement process that we're always striving to have as detailed information as we can but making it the most efficient way possible for our providers to be in compliance and provide that information. So we've reached the uh, end of the major piece of it, and I want to see, Catherine, if you've got any questions. Okay, thank you, Melody. We do have a few questions and uh, a few questions right here. So why do you think some practices struggle with creating detailed clinical documentation? Yeah, that's a hard one. You know, it's a couple different reasons for that, I think. One is it depends on how the electronic medical record was created. Because when, when EMR vendors come in, you know, as I said at the beginning, EMR, electronic medical records are both a blessing and a curse. There are a lot of really good things with it. But usually when they install them as, as a vendor, they don't really want the liability of how you set it up. So they basically say, you tell us how you want it set up and we'll do that for you. Well, most practices are really looking for somebody to come in from the outside and tell them best practices. So what happens a lot of times is things get set up incorrectly and nobody really knows it until it's already done and then now all of a sudden we've got the system and it's, and it's not the most efficient way to do it. And so what'll happen sometimes is the providers, it's so cumbersome for them to document everything that they sometimes don't um, with that. I think that's part of it. I also think when new providers come on board, depending on the size of the organization. If organizations don't invest the onboarding time, because usually by the time a provider hits the door, they're worried about credentialing and they want to get them seeing patients really quick and every, every day, every minute's important. It, they don't always take the time to sit down and help the physician truly maximize the system and build where appropriate things with, that, are, that are their personal preferences to make them most efficient with that. And so we, we get into this frantic hurry and sometimes ultimately that hurts us in the long run. Okay, all right. And how about um, some of the anticipated EM changes? Can you discuss some of the anticipated EM changes for 2021? Yes, that's going to be a really big change for us as we go into 2021 with the evaluation and management codes. They're going to they're they're going to be eliminating the new patient level one code, the 99201. But the biggest change is medical decision making is going to be the overriding factor 
for selecting the level of those office visits. So right now, for established patient visits, we you know we do two out of three, and Medicare says medical decision making has to be one of those. But even for new patient visits, it's three out of three. But it's going to be medical decision making that is the complete driver of what level is selected. So history and exam are going to be there, but they're not going to define the level like they've done in the past. The other thing is time will be the other factor. So you'll pick your level of care based on either time or medical decision making, and there'll be specific documentation guidelines for that, but that's a huge change. And for certain specialties that didn't bill as much E&M, there's now evaluation going on that relates to how this is going to impact them. So most organizations are really seeing this change coming for E&M as extremely positive because it's going to be less burdensome on the physician in terms of a lot of the documentation and it's going to focus on that whole issue of medical necessity in the process. Mm, okay. So how do you think these changes will impact most providers then? Well, I think for a lot of them that that are our specialists and they do see a lot of complexity of patients, they're going to be able to focus more, not worrying. I mean, you, history exam need to be documented. We're not going to go away from that. But in some places, people are so concerned about checking that box to get a complete review of systems and, you know, how many elements, you know, and if we're looking at 97 guidelines, how many elements for exam and that kind of stuff. It gets us away from that mindset and it gets us to focusing on the patient. So I do think that's going to help. There are system changes that some organizations are going to need to make in the documentation to make sure that they're capturing time appropriately to support that. So a few system changes and then potentially a, a Again, it's not we're not loosening, but we're we're enabling our providers to focus more on that medical decision making piece rather than history and exam kind of creating something as more of a hurdle to jump through in the process. Okay, and then we hear some we sometimes hear rumors that ICD eleven will be coming soon. When do you think that will occur? Yeah, yeah so. good question. Yeah, because the World Health Organization's got I eleven out there and you know, there's there was when I ten first got implemented, everybody was always, oh, and I eleven is right around the corner. Yeah, you know, before we do anything in the United States with I eleven, we will first have to Americanize it, which is basically putting that CM. So ICD ten CM, the CM clinical modifications is the American version of it. Um, there's other CAs, the Canadian version, AMs, Australian version. There's a lot of versions. That has to be done by an organ, you know, group that there's a particular coordinating group that does that. To my knowledge, they haven't done that yet. Once they do that, they're still several years out. Um, there's a lot of positives to I-11. I-11 incorporates what's called SNOMED, which is the um, basically kind of the research language and clinical language that has a lot of value. So people are really excited about that. But that said, I mean, I, I can't imagine that I-11 would be around before even 2025, just with all the other initiatives and things going on. Um, but my crystal ball is broken, so I don't know for sure, but I don't think it's something that we have to worry about in the short term. Wow. Okay. All right. So coming soon means for a while out still. <laughs> okay. I think everybody would say hopefully so, yes. Okay. All right. Well, all right. Well, thank you so much. Do you have any other words of advice or anything you'd like to add for us today? No. You know, I think the thing overall is anytime you talk about trying to balance efficiency for our providers and ensuring compliance, that can sometimes create some challenging situations. It can sometimes get frustrating for both the providers and also compliance professionals with that. And I would just encourage you to, to not give up on it. I would encourage you to, it, it is, it is a, a, 
opportunity worth tackling with that because at the end of the day everybody does want the same thing everybody wants to get appropriate reimbursement but to have an efficient process and so it is something that you just have to continually work on and recognize that it is a partnership between the providers and compliance professionals to do that and I think if you approach it that way then you can make positive results it may not happen all overnight but working together you can make really positive changes for that very true very true. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, I wanted to remind our uh, attendees to um, remember that they can download the, a copy of the slides um, either on the side panel or on the upper panel. I think there's a button there. So uh, reminding our attendees that they can do that and you can get um, contact information on there for Melody and for Revenue Cycle Coding Strategies and uh, contact them directly. Uh, if you have any further questions, you can also send us questions here at uh, First Healthcare Compliance and we can forward them on. Uh, please remember your PACOM and your PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it. Uh, you can register for any future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you again, Melody, for joining us. I appreciate that so much. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you again for our attendees. And thank you all for joining us.